Hey, I'm Michael, and this is Michael in the Middle. It's an intergenerational relational podcast for people who are interested in better human interaction. I'm glad you're here. Hey, all right. Episode number nine, Michael in the Middle. And I... I mean this, uh, I say this most every episode, I couldn't be more excited about uh, the person with whom I'll be speaking over these next uh, few moments, but uh, I sincerely mean it. It's great to have Dr. Rondi Smith on the other side of that screen and welcome in Rondi to Michael in the Middle. I am so excited about this. I told you I loved the title uh, of your podcast for a lot of reasons and I'm a little bit jealous because I think you... Uh, stole some thunder. I have this little book rattling around in my head called I Found Truth in the Middle of the Road. And when, I, and when I saw Michael in the Middle, I thought, well, Michael in the Middle sounds better than Rondi in the Middle. You've got that alliteration thing going on. But anyway, <laughs> I thought it'd be fun to come and talk. Yep. But uh, I'm glad to know you already have the book. That's that's pretty cool. Well, uh, just rattling around in my soul, but it'll take a lot of work to get it out. I think I, uh, I, I had, uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Harold Ivan Smith on, um, a, a while back. And, uh, Harold's always trying to get me to put all these thoughts I have. He's read some of my blogs and things like that. And he said, when are you going to write your book? You know? And, uh, so I, I feel that with you, you got, you got this book rattling around in there. When, when am I going to sit down and do it? Well, you mentioned Harold Ivan Smith, so I have to tell you this. I listened. I've listened to all of them, and it's so interesting because I know everybody that you've that you've interviewed. Uh, but I had to chuckle when you had him on. Here's a funny story. Um, when I was at Trevecca, and this would have been February of 1985, so it was in my senior year. Um, and we had what was just called revival then now it's spiritual deepening week, I yeah. think, but, um, he was one of the, the guest speakers. I don't know if he was the, the entirety, uh, or not, but I, the, here's why I remember him, you know, at that time in his career, he was not only the, um, the grief expert for the church of the Nazarene, but he talked a lot about singleness. He was kind of that voice for singleness in the church of the Nazarene right. and went to the solo cons and that kind of thing. Well, um, think of, think of the timing. Um, I'm going to be graduating in June of 85. Bobby Smith and I have been dating for two years. I have two different assistantship opportunities that I'm trying to weigh. I got offered at um, Auburn, where two of my dearest friends were going, Laura Sweet and Kelly Bowman, or I got offered at KU, which is where you and I shared a, a professorial mentor in Jim Quiggins, and that's where he did his doctoral work, and I had an offer there. And I'm weighing life and thinking, is this boy ever going to propose to me, or is he not? <laughs> Uh, because I'd like for him to weigh in on this decision. We had talked about, you know, a future together. But I went to this revival service and Harold Ivan Smith spoke on called to be single. And I literally sat there and, you know, our dear mutual friend, Julie Smith Runyon. Yeah. Lee, my best friend all through college. We were part of this revival service together. Bobby was uh, at home in his apartment and I, Julie, I drug Julie down to the altar and said, you got to pray with me because I don't know, maybe I'm called to be single. <laughs> and 
literally, Michael, I'm telling the truth. I left that revival service with Julie's blessing and she had been the one to fix me and Bobby up. It was Julie who had match made, but I went with her blessing. I said, I think I'm going to have to go and tell him, I don't know, maybe I'm called to be single. Oh, Some people would laugh and think I called his bluff. That's really not what happened, but <laughs> I'm proud to say he had already planned to ask me to marry him because as I'm trying to tell him through tears that I might be called to be single, he says, no, let me talk to you about a different calling. And he pulled out the ring and proposed right then and there. I messed up his plans for a Valentine's Day proposal the next yeah. day. This February 13th. And literally that is our engagement story. Mm. Is that not a hoot? I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. And I, I, does Harold know that story? I don't know if he does or not, but after he was on your, your podcast, I thought I need to call him and tell him this story. I think he would get such a kick out of that. And, uh, you know, I was not called to be single and uh, you know, I didn't, I, but I thought, well, maybe I'm supposed to wrestle with this because here I need to make some decisions. I got to move on with my life. Clar <laughs> clarifying moments. When, uh, when did it clarify in your mind that, that, uh, you would want to go to Trebekah to do your undergrad because I, I mean, I having worked here for all of these years, not just at Trebekah, but in the field of higher ed, you know, those, those four years are like really truly are a bridge between adolescence and adulthood. And so many things that happen after that are determined by where you end up going to college and who you go to college with and that sort of thing. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, our friend Julie plays a little bit of a role in that as well. Um, we were both um, founding members of uh, an impact team in North Carolina called Multi-Ministries. Barbara Tate was the first director of the Multi-Ministries impact team. And Julie and I both made the team as freshmen in high school. And that solidified our relationship. We we became best friends over those four years. We had known each other before, but that really solidified our relationship. And, you know, during that senior year of college, I mean, of high school, when you're, you're trying to make all these decisions, and it was a no doubt for Julie, she was going to Trebekah. Yeah. And for me, I was struggling because I thought I was going to be the next Barbara Walters. I thought I was supposed to do broadcast journalism. I had gone between my junior and senior year to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to their radio, TV, motion picture institute. And, you know, it was a scholarship position and I had scholarship dollars to go to UNC. And that's where I was headed. And um, Julie just wasn't having it. <laughs> <laughs> and she really tried to get me to pray through on um, God's call on my life to Trebekah. But literally, that that is what happened. I I remember when I saw uh, on an impact weekend, Julie and I were rooming together um, at a little old lady's house somewhere in North Carolina. I can't tell you exactly where. And we walked into the room we were supposed to be staying in that night. And, and she had one of those plaques on the wall that said, um, you only have one life. It'll soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Mm -hmm. And Julie led us through our devotions that night. And it, it really was a moment of surrendering. I would call that my entire sanctification moment of putting <laughs> everything on the altar and saying, where is my life, Lord? And Lord made it clear that my life was at Trevecca. And when I think about what I would have missed, I would have missed my whole life. 
my relationship with Julie, at, you know, those four years then um, in college, um, meeting my husband and knowing he would be my life, me, finding my life's work, really falling in love with the whole discipline of um organizational communication and interpersonal communication and uh, just how that led to so many things in my life uh, to come back and teach at Trevecca, you know, for 12 years, I taught there at my alma mater. And it's, it's like the Lord, his promises are true. When he said, you'll find your life at Trevecca. <laughs> I did. I found my life there. So that's, that's yeah, in an interesting sort of way. And this happens to me a lot. Um, because I've worked here so long, it can be confused with mundane or routine to a certain extent, you know, because the rhythm of a college year and the the similitude of of other calendars that intersect with what I do on behalf of the university, you know, sometimes it's like, ah, you know, um, you're still doing this kind of thing. And, and, and then when I hear your story and and other stories like it it's like that's that's what i do i mean that's that's part of why i'm still here is because you, i hear these stories and I, I know it's still happening for other students across all these years you know yeah, and you you played a role you were an admissions counselor yeah. uh when i was in high school yeah. see you're so much older than me and you know when we would come to vip days it was called vip days on the campus at yeah. Trevecca, and and you folks who went before us who who just modeled again i think how you can find your life here at Trevecca. you all were in, inspirational and yeah i think you you're right where you're supposed to be, Michael. You've you've been an ambassador for Trevecca your whole life, and it's a great thing. Well, I'm gonna do it for a while longer, I think. I, I don't know how long. I, I, uh, you're experiencing it for the first time, but uh, you know, being a grandparent, I, there are days where it's like, how much longer am I gonna, you know, work a, you know, the steady year-round job? I, I kind of want to get free to go see my my sons and their families, grandkids. We have six grandkids and they're all amazing. And, but they're all. And, you're, sad, and you know? you're married to a retired spouse and I'm married to a newly retired spouse. Yeah. And, and I do have my first grandbaby and, and she lives in Chicago. So yeah, you, you start thinking, uh, and it's okay. You know, sometimes God does his best work slowly and he starts planting those seeds and getting yeah. us ready and we're moving intentionally, but you know, he'll let us know when it's time. <laughs> So um, let's, uh, before we kind of move on to some things that you've done as a result of all the education and experiences that you've had, um, talk a little bit about, about your family. Feel free to talk about your family of origin and now the, the family that you and Bobby have created together. Are there, are there some interesting things that, that you have been in the middle of as a result of that? you know, that, that have informed, I guess, maybe what it is that you do now. Yeah. Yeah. I was born to pillar Nazarene layman and, um, you know, they're, they're modeling, um, excellent churchmanship all through my life, uh, was very much, uh, pivotal, uh, for me. And, um, and I was a middle child, you know, when I told you this idea of Michael in the middle, 
Um, I have often been a champion for middleness is good. Like there are a lot of great things about middleness. You know, people whine and complain about the middle child or being a middle child. I was a very blessed middle child. Um, and you know, I, we were middle-class family, uh, and, and I'm glad that we were. And I think some of that even plays into, um, just when I say I found truth in the middle of the road, I think for me, truth for me is, is, is often about the intersectionality of a lot of things. And it's where those things collide kind of in an, in an intersection in the middle of the road that, that gives me life. And, and I think, you know, I'm a very just centric person. I I try to be centered and balanced. And, um, I, I, you know, we get in trouble sometimes in the extremes and it's not that I'm not a passionate person, but I can be passionate right. about what's in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't want to, I don't want that to mean I'm, I'm lukewarm. I don't want that to mean, um, I've, I've compromised, but it's like when you talk about, um, it's a bridge, you know, you, you want this to be a bridge kind of to those intersections. And I think about Stephen Covey and, um, you know, when he talks about synergy where one plus one can equal three, not yeah. Not one plus one equals a half because we've compromised, but it's it's three because we've said, ooh, it's not your way or my way, but it's a higher way. It's a third yeah. way. It's an alternative way. It's, And so I think being a lot in the middle, <laughs> my parents were pretty in the middle and politically, you know, and so I don't necessarily identify as Republican or Democrat. I really do this whole, I don't know. Um, living in some middle ground. So I think those things definitely, you know, have shaped me. And then, so that's, and my my family of origin, when I say I was a middle child, another thing that really shapes me is my younger sister was born with multiple um, challenges and being her older sister um, by four and a half years really shaped my life. And I have an older brother who I adore and um, my younger sister, our younger sister actually died at the tender young age of 24 and I was 28 at the time and living um, through that with her, both her life and her death impacted me so tremendously. And then Julie, my best friend, walked with me through that only two short years later to have her own diagnosis when we were 31 of ovarian cancer already in stage four. And to walk that with walk that out with her then. And I say those were two, those were my two sisters, my biological sister and my soul sister. And to lose them both in a period of two and a half years Um both of them, their their entire lives and their deaths shaped me and continue to shape me. Um, and so, you know, that's that's some about, I guess, my my family and my extended family. And then when Bobby and I um, got married, he also was um, child. He was the youngest of four, but of pillar Nazarene layman. And it's so interesting how I think, you know, when you're trying to discern who it is you're supposed to marry, I thought, oh, we're both these children of 
Pillar Nazarene Layman, that just puts us, you know, we have so much core value or whatever that's the same. Only to begin to learn, you know, after you're married, all the way, oh, wow, that was really different in your household than it was in mine. And how do we begin to merge these kind of um, different cultures, if you will? You think you have so much in common and you're so much alike. And then you learn that, oh, it wasn't exactly that way. Um <laughs> But then we uh, we raised two amazing sons, so Daniel and Kyle. And um, Daniel went to one of my alma maters, Treveca, and he, uh, you know, did all those Treveca things that we know and love, and met his wife Lauren Boyer there, and and they got married. Um, and so that was fun to get to share with him that sure. that shared alma mater. And then our younger son Kyle. Um, went to Vanderbilt and he met and married Emmy Weikert, who also went to Vanderbilt. And right. that was, is another of my alma maters. My doctorate is from there. And so to get to share the Vanderbilt um, experience, you know, with them was also fun. If we'd had a third child, maybe he or she would have gone to KU. I don't know. <laughs> That's the school that got left out. But yeah. um, it's been tremendous to walk with those boys through their life and then um, now get to relate to them as young men. Um, and they brought us these two daughters in love that um, I adore them both. And it's so great to have four adult children that you have mutual respect and they teach me so much and we, we have the best dialogue. I love it. And now there's a little girl, Team Smith, finally got a girl. Um, I had told both of my boys because we didn't have girls. I said, one of you is going to have to have me a little girl. So when Daniel gave us the news, he said, I'm the obedient son, Mom. Remember <laughs> that I'm you know, giving you a little girl. So uh, we'll see what Kyle and Emmy do. <laughs> how do you, uh, how do you uh, measure out the work that you feel called to do with making sure that you make time for Bobby and for Daniel and Kyle and their families. What's, what's a good work-life balance for you? Yeah, it, it's definitely been one of the biggest challenges of life. I think um, first and foremost, Bobby Smith is the wind beneath my wings. I tell him just under the wind of the Holy spirit and the wings of the Holy spirit, you know, just under um, he truly, uh, you know, early on in my marriage, it was, um, I'll say this uh, about him. Um, he he wanted to provide for his family. That was his personal mission. He he was driven by. I don't necessarily have a certain ambition or calling other than to do well and provide for my family. And so early on, he said, "So let me let me come and support." your personal mission and your calling because you have a calling on your life. And then I think he did the same thing for our sons. And he said, you know, I, I really want to be able to, to support, you know, their lives. And that's what he's done. And so our boys certainly did not suffer. I don't think um, they had a very hands-on active father. Um, that may have been why the Lord gave me sons. I don't know. Sometimes I've wondered because he had more flexibility sometimes to, to really, you know, he coached all their sports and, you know, never missed anything that they did. But my sons also have told me, you know, they, um, they appreciated having a strong mom, a, you know, a leader, someone who was out there doing things and modeling things and their, their wives really appreciate me because they say you and Bobby 
raised sons that understand um, the way the genders are supposed to respect one another right. and that it's a true blessed alliance and partnership and that we, we appreciate you all for doing that. And they, um, yeah, they're, they're the beneficiary of men who respect um, strong women and, and women who have um, goals and dreams and careers outside of just the home, but saying the home is, I mean, my, my children came before anything. And at the same time, God allowed me to continue um, sharing my gifts with others as well. I love that. I love that. Um, so, um, let's, uh, let's, let's kind of start down that path. You, you opened the door a little bit to, um, you know, your leadership and, and management studies and, and the opportunities that you've had to employ uh, a lot of that in the work that you've done. There's a common thread here. Uh, it, it seems to me it was your uh, was your undergraduate degree where we still call it uh, communication and human relations. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I both products of that. Yeah. Phase. And and then I mean, within a, you, you graduated from Trebek in 85 and then within two years, you have a master's degree in organizational communication from uh, University of Kansas out there in Lawrence. Uh, do you enjoy that experience i heard great things about it you know oh yeah you know at that point in time they were a, they were a top 10 school in that field and so right. it was i really think i made a great choice to go out there now bobby and i were um both southern born and bred you know he's from savannah george from the coast i was born in atlanta and then lived in north carolina we went out to Lawrence, Kansas, and, and that first winter was like record snowfall, record low temperatures for them, record wind chill. And we were like, what have we done? We were newlyweds and just shivered in our little apartment and froze to death. But it was a, it was a great experience. But we were just out there long enough for me to get the master's. And I had planned to stay for the doctorate out there. Yeah. And and. I could tell Bobby was already like, oh, get me back to the Southeast. Um, and interestingly, I got a phone call from, um, you know, the dean of the college who had been my dean. And then, you you know, Dr. Strickland, I get a call from him and then from, from Dr. Homer Adams, who... Yeah you know, and love um, both of them, you know, they had been the president and the Dean while I'm a student and they're calling and saying, um, would you consider there is an opening in your department, communication studies department. Would you consider coming back, finding a doctorate here in town and um, come back to your, to your alma mater. And I think that when I left, I had always thought that I might return. I could tell the trajectory of my career was changing. I was not going to be the next Barbara Walters. And I did feel like Christian higher education, it had formed and shaped me so profoundly that I did want to give back. And so um, I took them up on their offer and came back too soon, you know, when you're just two years older than then students you're going to have uh, in your classes, it was probably too soon. But um, I, I did find this amazing doctoral program, which really was a better fit for me. Um, so again, God looks out for us at um, Peabody College of Vanderbilt University in, in human and organizational development. Yeah, I was going to say that the, the KU programs were uh, largely communication theory based, if I remember correctly. Correct. And and when you go to Vanderbilt, 
was that part of the Owen School as well? Or you were at Peabody? I was at Peabody, but it was an interesting time period. They were doing sort of a pilot project. Um, and and there was a lot of intersection between Owen School and then this and then the Peabody School of, of Education, and they were piloting this HOD program, which now is a cornerstone program right. at Vanderbilt, not only at the, at, at the graduate level but at the undergrad level now. But right. it was a, a kind of a pilot graduate program, and it really was the model that then I'm getting ahead of myself, but when I got to come back to Trevecca and help Dr. Welch um, with, you know, with the EDD program right. at Trevecca, yeah. part of that was modeled after this cohort model, you know, that I'd been able to go through at Vanderbilt. And they did, they changed the, where it was not the traditional dissertation that was purely research-based, but it was more the practice. It was right. a you know, a, a project, a, an action-based research project. And I loved, you know, that fact too. So I, I would be interested, this is kind of wonky and maybe uh, people who are involved in higher education will get more out of this than, than anybody, but I want to, I don't want to discount it for someone else. Those, those are three very different types of universities, Trevecca, you know, KU and, and Vanderbilt, but where there's some common threads, where there's some things that kind of ran through the middle of each of those experiences, not to overplay that middle too much, but uh, do a quick compare and contrast. Uh, were, were there some commonalities there? Yeah, well, certainly um, I was at the right place at the right time, I think, in each of those arenas. And I, again, just credit God's guidance in my life. I would not have traded my undergrad years at a small private Christian university particularly yeah. for anything in the world. So foundational just in uh, all the layers of who I was. And, and I, I, I would not have gotten that same experience. I know now I wouldn't have gotten if I'd gone to, to UNC, a great school, but right. I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. But by the time I finished Trevecca, I was a little concerned, I think, going to KU grad school, because again, at that point in time, it was competitive. They were a, a top 10 school in communication. And I thought, will my Trevecca experience hold up against all these people that I'm going to be in class yeah. with, be, um, you know, colleagues with in the graduate program? And they're coming from all these big name universities. And I felt like I stood up with all of them. And so then had a better appreciation of the actual education that I got at Trevecca. But I also know it was important for me at that time to be in a secular, if you will, university setting to really begin to um, grow up and broaden my horizons and be exposed to a lot of things that maybe I wasn't ready to be exposed to just even in my thinking um until after a good solid foundation so i loved going there for graduate school and then by the time i ended up at at vanderbilt and i'll just say it you know again i had a son who went through there i mean Van, vanderbilt's one of the more liberal uh places you'll find on the planet and uh again just an, another opportunity to really I, I just am a firm believer in 
you can be grounded. You can have your, your feet centered in some core values, but let some winds blow by you that are going to, that are going to strengthen you by, you know, really challenging you and at all kinds of levels. And I felt like I got that, but I also felt like I found within my cohort, um, you know, you can find your people everywhere you go. And I found right. my people at KU and I found my people, you know, at Vanderbilt and, and you can develop the relationships that, that can keep you centered and grounded while you're letting your mind just expand. And I'm so I'm thankful and grateful for all those three different types of exposure. So you you became thank you for, for explaining that those those experiences, uh, all of our life experiences are shaping us as we move through it. And we don't know exactly. And if we did know exactly, it wouldn't be near as much fun, right? You, That's right. You, you, you start down this path because this is what to this point in your life has been, seemed like the, the, the way to go. Somewhere along in there, you're hooking up with the Gallup organization to be one of the early people in Strengths Finder and how you helped people embrace the strengths that they had rather than focus on the weaknesses. I, I still think that's a brilliant way to look at some of these personality profiles that people do. I, 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 I can't tell you what my Enneagram number is because it seems like every time I take it, I get a different number, you know, I don't know what that says about me, but Shrinks Finder really, it resonated with me. Yeah. How did you get involved with them? Was that, that was while you were at Trebekah or was that a yeah. separate? That was while I was at Trevecca. Um, I don't know if you remember Chip Anderson, but Chip Anderson, um, who really had Nazarene roots, and then he was at other uh, institutions of higher education. But he UCLA had in particular, right? Yes, yes. And then Azusa Pacific, and um, yeah, and he really became the champion, I think, within um, small uh, Christian higher ed to utilize the Gallup Strengths Finder. And so um, I was privileged to um, really, I guess at the time, you know, did so many things at Trevecca, but I was um, leading the, like the freshman experience is what it was called right. at that time or freshman. Yeah. And we were, we were looking uh, for, for fresh things to do. And so it was privileged to go through some training on the strengths finder with Gallup and with Chip Anderson and go down to, to um, Samford University in Birmingham was really catching uh, on to it. Uh, Bob Brower and Corliss McGee were at, um, at Mid-America and they were catching the vision and we all actually traveled to, uh, to Samford to a, to a conference. Just the whole, the quality movement and strengths finder was kind of happening at the same time. I was living kind of in the, the the TQM total quality management movement and those things were dovetailing. Um, and yeah, I loved, I resonated with strength finder immediately. I felt like I've done every, cause I'm a student of that. I'd done every assessment there was to do out there. And this one was unique. And I did get the opportunity then to be mentored by Don Clifton of it's called the Clifton oh, Strengths okay. Finder now. Yeah. Don himself was a genius and he was chair of the Gallup organization. Um, also a fantastic man of faith, Christian. And um, I was gifted an opportunity to go out there and do their executive leadership development and where you go deeper on that. So I really, I became a trained, a certified strengths coach because I loved it so much, but it started, um, with some opportunities at Trevecca to get that training through Chip Anderson. So 
I I love. I, I mean, I was I was here. I came back in 1997. I, I we were in Oklahoma 1992 to 97. So I was here when you came, and I got back before you left. But something began to stir in you shortly after as as antiquated as this sounds after the turn of the century <laughs> right i mean early 2000s you you made quite a transition out of higher ed into into local church ministry what was yeah that? no one no one was more surprised by that than me <laughs> um i really thought when i came back to treveca i mean you could slip my wrist and i would bleed purple i just yeah. thought i i am gonna die here you know i'll be the next barbara mclean although she ended up you know she ended up leaving uh at one point we we didn't think that would happen and she got married late in life and left but <laughs> i just thought i'd be one of the lifers at treveca but i was a serious disciple of christ and while I was doing what I loved and I was very happy where I was, I began, um, I was doing just serious Bible study and began to feel stirred that God was calling me to preach. And Michael, I resisted it. I did not want to be a woman preacher. I think there had not been good models uh, growing up and, and I just, it's not who I was. I didn't think it was who I was. You know, even I would go back to when Julie and I came to Trevecca together, you know, we were so we adored one another. We were so different. She immediately knew she wanted to do social work yeah. and, you know, worked then with child protective services. And I, that was not, I, I was still thinking of the business side really of communication, organizational communication, leadership, all those things. And, Again, I just, I'd never wanted to be a preacher, Yeah. but I had fallen in love with scripture and I was a teacher and I loved teaching the word. And I, I taught the same Sunday school class at Hermitage Church of the Nazarene for 25 years, if that tells you anything. I loved teaching and teaching the word, but I just hadn't thought about a pastoral calling um, or a preaching calling. And literally you mentioned Gallup. While I was out in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, in September of 2001, um, and I was in a leadership-focused uh, session that was all about me. It was about my strengths, my gifts. You know, they're giving me all this reports yeah. of all my stuff really trying to help me figure out what does the next decade of my life look like? Cause they knew I was kind of wrestling with a call and a lot of well-meaning people had talked, tried to talk me out of this call. There were well-meaning people who said, Oh no, 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 Your gifts. You're supposed to stay in higher ed or you're supposed to do this. You're yeah. supposed to do that, but you're not supposed to go into pastoral ministry and ministry in the church. And I, they assigned me a former pastor and minister as my coach. And he really understood and we were fleshing it out. And we walked out of his office on the morning of 9-11. And when we walked out of his office, the Gallup organization, uh, the headquarters then was in a big rectangle. And in all four corners, they had a giant life-size jumbotron because they always like to watch the you know Gallup poll tick across and all that. So think about these giant jumbotrons in all four corners of this building. And we walk out to this eerie silence, except you could hear people weeping and you looked and people, wherever they were, they were frozen and they had their, their eyes glued to one of those jumbotrons. And we walked out right at the time that the second plane went into the second tower. And literally I had my answer. 
I mean, the Lord basically in the sweet way that he does, he doesn't beat you up over it, but he just kind of said, see, see why I'm calling you like the harvest is ripe and, and the workers are few and I, I need, I need you. And I know he didn't really need me, but he let me sense that he needed me. And I answered the call that day to, to pastor and preach. And it, it was a process of leaving Trevecca because I didn't leave for another year, yeah. um, but it it was clear what I was to do. And so I had to go process leaving a place that I loved and going to a place that I knew nothing about. <laughs> and I, other than having experienced, you know, always being ministered to. Um, right. And I, it, it was, it was incredible to um, just go to know what that Abraham call almost was. I'm asking you to leave a place and go to a, leave a place that, you know, and, and love well and go to a place you don't know much about and it was a great leap of faith and then this is another place where my husband's such a hero because i had to come home and say guess what um god is telling me i need to leave my very secure of uh, place of employment and income yeah. and go volunteer a year at our own local church that's i heard a very specific call not just to pastor and preach, but while you're training, while you're going and getting ordained and you're training, you're going to go and, and volunteer a year of your service uh, at your church and then see what I will do. And I thought, and so did the pastor at the time, thought that, oh, God is just claiming your um, organizational management and organizational leadership mm -hmm. gifts because I went to a church that was growing. We had a pastor that it was really growing, but we didn't necessarily have the infrastructure in place to handle that growth. And so I did start as community life pastor to sort of help put some of that structure, but those were just the bridge gifts. And then God said, no, I'm also claiming your teaching gifts and, and you're going to preach. And so I, I went and did all that. <laughs> and you did that for how many years? I was there for 14 years on that pastoral staff. So I tell people a lot of times that um, God gets very specific with me. And, you know, I thought I'd be a lifer at Trevecca. And then after about a dozen years, he remade me. And then I thought I'd be a lifer at Hermitage Church. And then after about 14 years, really 10 years into it, he started remaking me. But he gave me a little longer time to kind of detach Um but it was it was as a result of that preaching and pastoral ministry that God began to call me to what I'm doing right now. And I know just from uh, you know knowing you a little bit and and, and reading again about some of the things that, that you ultimately have gotten into the middle of now, and and we're gonna we're gonna really turn toward these last few years with this amazing work that God has led you to, but. You went on a, am I, am I right? You went on a trip. Was that, was that with Hermitage or was that another group? You, you went to Africa at one point, right? Kenya, maybe? Oh, I, I did. That was in 2012, though. That's a little ahead of the, the 2011. June 2011. I'll start there. June 2011. Um, I had, I, I'd been at Hermitage for 10 years in pastoral ministry, associate pastoral ministry. And, um, they were going to gift me a summer sabbatical for my 10 years of service. And it was really great timing because I was wrestling again. God was starting to stir this new, um, this new, uh, well, I'll tell you this. We were, I had been leading our congregation as the community life pastor. All of our small groups have been going through that book by David Platt called Radical. 
And the subtitle of it was Taking Back Our Faith from the American Dream. And that was in 2011. And I would just tell you that that book was prophetic. It's more relevant today than it's ever been. But this idea of we have to take back our faith from the American dream. And it was really challenging us to, to consider how have we allowed our, our culture to almost manipulate our understanding of the gospel? And um, are we going to get radical and, and really live like Jesus said his followers would live where yeah. you, you abandon everything and you, you're all about, you know, the, the gospel to the last and the least and the lost. And so it was really challenging me leading our congregation through it. And then I had been also reading half the sky, which is the, the, the book that broke my heart about the issue of human trafficking and sex trafficking in particular. And so again, all these things were colliding and I needing to wrestle this to the mat. And so I took, um, an opportunity during my sabbatical to do a, a silent retreat up at the monastery in Kentucky, the Abbey yeah. of Gethsemane. And that, that experience, I came home from that experience. God basically founded Rest Stop Ministries there in that garden. It's a replica of the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here I'm watching Jesus agonize over his father's will. And I'm agonizing over my father's will of, am I really are you, are you really asking me to do something big in this arena? Can't I just, but then it was the following year, the Africa trip you're talking about in 2012, while I'm still, I'm wrestling this thing to the mat. I know God has founded rest stop ministries in this garden. He named it. He told me everything, but I'm figuring out, okay, how now, how do I make this happen? And I was invited to be part of this um, Kenya gender-based violence project that the Church of the Nazarene was doing um, with Jim Koppel. I don't know if you know him. Um, SAI, Servant, Servant Forge, was leading it. And um, at the time, she wasn't our general superintendent, but Dr. Carla Sundberg was part of the same group. There were several of us who were asked to um, just be a part of kind of a, a, a steering committee and um, the Church of the Nazarene was partnering with UNICEF, and they, they were just looking at the issue of gender-based violence in Kenya. So I went on that trip in 2012 while all these other things were stirring. And just, again, the Lord just brought it all together because we saw all the atrocities that, you know, here, I'll be honest. I was, at the time, I was serving as the chair of the Women Clergy Council of our denomination, but it wasn't really global at that point. It was more, we were serving women clergy in USA, Canada. And, and even though we had a long way to go in terms of empowering women, even though our polity has always been that we ordained women since 1901, our practice didn't always keep up with our polity. And, and we were in a season then of low numbers of women clergy and trying to ask all the questions why and trying to empower. And I, and I loved working in that arena and, and trying to empower my sisters, you know, we were, we were trying to break the stained glass ceiling, if you will. Um, but I was doing that at the same time Then I had this trip to Kenya and I saw sister, my sisters over there, my global sisters, just in, in dire situations, so much different. And I just, I thought, you know, I don't know that I can continue to just advocate for um, 
wealthy North American women to be empowered <laughs> in their clergy service when all this other stuff is happening around the globe to my sisters, you know, genital mutilation and the sex trafficking and the acid burnings and the honor killings and the, you know, all the things and the things we saw in Nairobi, uh, well, in, in Kenya, where it, Nairobi was the only place where there was a gender-based violence hospital that tended to the unique issues of women who had experienced gender-based violence. And I, I got to meet a woman named Margaret and her six-year-old daughter, Grace, and this is horrific, but both of them had had to travel from the northwest corner of Kenya up in the Lodwar area all the way down to Nairobi. And for, for impoverished people, you know, just that travel is so difficult. And, and they were both there. The mother and the daughter had been so violently um, gang raped and abused that they were both there to have reconstructive surgery, a mother and her six-year-old daughter. And Carla Sundberg and I got to go in the hospital room and talk to Margaret and, and talk to Grace and try to minister to them. And so, yeah, I went home from that and it's like, okay, we cannot waste any more time. Like not on my watch, this, this can't happen. And so the Lord just began to give me some ways to, I wasn't called to, the mission field, but it was find out what's happening right here in your backyard because it's it's in every zip code where you live. And what are you going to do about it? That's an amazing story and a, and a perfect segue, I think, now to be a little more specific about what Rest Stop Ministries is. I'm going to pop this logo up here for people to see. And, um, you know, the, the idea of rest, you're talking about that mother and daughter and the arduous journey they had just to get to where you were, where you met them. The, the, the idea of rest for people for whom the pain and the sorrow is relentless. I, I just, I'm, so moved by it. I'm, I'm moved by looking at the logo. That yeah. I'm moved by looking at it right now too. Just as you say that, because yes, when I told you God, God named it when I was in that garden um, at the Abbey and he said, your mission and your vision is right there in that name. Rest, restore these precious survivors. And yes, give them rest from the horrific chaos of their lives. And it's going to be a rest that you know is going to only come from, from me, the true rest. And he said, stop, stop this horrific criminal oppression and this brutal this brutal treatment of women. And, and then he put the two together and he said, rest stop. Um, you're going to provide a rest stop on their journey. Just as you said, Michael, you're, you're it's like, it's going to be an oasis on this desert wilderness journey that they've had. And you're going to provide them a resting place, a place to stop the madness of their life and come and find genuine rest and healing. So yes, it had so many layers. And after that, 2012 Kenya experience to then just, oh God, you are so far ahead of me and you named it well before I fully understood what it was that you were asking me to do. And, and he really, he said, you're going to provide a safe sanctuary for the healing of these women. And that's how you're going to stop this oppression. Even if it's just one woman at a time, you'll be stopping it when you're pulling them out of that life and 
and you're removing them from the, the ownership of a cruel trafficker or pimp and you're disrupting the crime by removing them, but then you're, you're, you're really supposed to focus on the restorative piece because who better than the church? You know, God makes sense in hindsight. A lot of times we're, we're trying to figure it out ahead of time and he knows what he's doing if we'll just follow. But then in hindsight, we're like, Oh yeah, I get it. You called me to ministry first. You called me from the higher education arena and you called me, you gave me all this theological and biblical training and you gave me a heart for ministry and pastoring. And then you're saying, now you're going to minister to a different kind of flock. I'm going to really stretch you, but you're going to use all of that and it's going to come together in this. And, and, and I'm telling you to, you know, go find, go, I need a, I need, I'm a rescue. You know, Jesus is, I'm a rescuer. I'm a deliverer. I, I'm a liberator. I'm a liberator of women. You're going to find these women and you're going to um, do all these things in my name. And, and so we, we said, yeah, who better than the church to provide this lavish biblical hospitality to, to, to show them the lavish love of Christ. And I could cry. I'm trying not to cry. I'm a crier, but I not to cry all through this, but when I think about, again, how this circles back to my dear friend, Julie, when we traveled on the impact team, she always did a, she always did a, a, a reading, a dramatic monologue. And it was based on those scriptures in, in John and the letters of John about how he loves us lavishly. And I think I heard her voice, you know, in my head about what kind of place, that we were supposed to provide and it was supposed to be lavish love and a place where just as the women walked on the campus, they would feel their worth. Like we did everything we could to make this such a beautiful space and a healing space and a, so that they would feel their worth and know um, you're doing something really hard and really courageous, but we believe that you're worth it. Yeah. Whatever difficulties we have trying to do this work, it's all worth it. Because if only for one, you know, he, I, he left the 99 to go find the one. I, I love it so much. And I, I've said it probably two or three segments already or episodes talking about how we we get so busy trying to change the world. I mean, you went to Kenya and you're thinking, what can I do for these people over here? And God's preparing you to do something for people just literally a couple of miles away from where you were you were living at the time. And and that brings me to the idea of home, you know, the vagabond experience that, you know, particularly women uh, are are facing when they're being trafficked and the way they they get moved around and they never they never feel like they have a place that they can call home and and then you get you get the opportunity with with this the uh, let me uh, let me make sure I get this up right here. Was this the first home you were given? Is Marion's house? Is that the first? Yeah, we we actually received both at the same time. Two beautiful homes that sit on twenty five acres, and um, this is the the first house, the front house we call it of the property, and and it is Marion's house, and then this is Laura's house, and it sits back farther on the twenty five acres, but. Um, yeah, I won't tell all the details, Michael, but the story behind even God leading us to this property, it's exactly what you said. What What is front and center in that story is that Marion and, and uh, 
Marion was the matriarch of the family members that kind of lived, uh, you know, it was families that lived on the 25 acres and, and the parents, uh, Marion and John lived in this home and one of their daughters, Laura, lived with her family in, in the other home. And Marion um, was the kind of woman who she said, everybody needs a place, just what you said. She said, everybody needs a place and everybody needs a home. And she was a wonderful, um, for, they spent a lot of years in um, the Nazarene family. And, and she was um, always loved to mentor the younger women and um, pour into them. And she was very much a homemaker and everybody had their place around the table. And in fact, if you didn't have a place, she would make a place around her table. Her, her daughters told me when we first started talking about um, getting this property, um, her daughter said, you know, mom was the kind of woman who we'd all come home as, as adults. And we were coming back home for Thanksgiving and everybody's sort of whispering, does anybody know who that is sitting in there in the living room? And it's like, oh, just somebody mom met at Walmart today and they didn't have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving dinner. And so she invited them. That's the kind of person she was. And tragically, Marion lost her life in an, in a tragedy that happened on that property. And, um, it, it was a tragedy that had many layers that left broken, broken family members. And when God first, through mutual friends, connected us, um, they told me, you know, when you started talking to us about what it was you might want the property for, um, it was our first sign of hope that kind of lifted our chin. We had been devastated by this tragedy and we thought, can anything good come from this? Cause it was a tragedy that had just some evil intent. And um, they just said, we said when we walked off this property that day, God will redeem it. We don't know how God will redeem this land, this property, this. And literally when we felt like God was saying, you're going to serve some survivors of a different kind. You think I've called you only to serve these human trafficking survivors, but before you even get there, the way you're, I'm going to get you there is you're going to serve these survivors who also need to have their hope restored, that there is a redeemer and that good can come, that beauty can come from ashes. And so literally when we all talked about this possibility, they said, our mother would love nothing more than for, for this to be the legacy of the property that she named Good Hope Farms. So if you hear us talk about Good Hope Farms, we are Rest Stop Ministries, but the property is Good Hope Farms because she named it and she told her children, oh, we just don't, we don't just have hope. We have a good hope. And his name is and, and they were very clear. Mom named this property Good Hope Farms, and she knew that that's he's the anchor to all hope. And and we just said, no brainer. What better name for what we plan to do here? We plan to grow hope, cultivate hope in these women's lives. And I will even tell you this. I wish I'd sent you this picture, Michael. But when we there was an old a century old barn on this property um, that was dilapidated and falling down. I, I had romantic notions of restoring the barn because I thought restore survivors, we're going to restore this barn. <laughs> but you know, 
some things just have to die and be resurrected. And then it's like that scripture when a seed falls to the ground, you know, it has to die, but then it, it will multiply. Yeah. The barn was beyond restoring, but, but we did dismantle the barn. And now we're making things with the barn wood and, and, and the women are learning how to do that. And we're selling things and it has a redemptive purpose. But here's the thing we found in that old barn when we took the, over the property, we found an old revival sign. It was like one of those big old wooden signs that had a hinge, like you would put it on the side of a barn where it would go on the corner and both sides. Huge revival here. It said in big red letters, it was a yellow sign revival here. We had revival when we found that revival sign in that barn, because again, we said, that's what's going to happen here. Revival here. That is what's going to happen here at Good Hope Farms and Rest Stop Ministries. And it has just been one God story after another like that. You know, he who calls us is faithful. And when God called me to this work, and I'll tell you, Michael, I've done hard things in my life, but this is the hardest work I've ever done. You... you you have to protect your staff from secondary trauma because you live with so much trauma and these stories are so horrific and you, you take it on. But, but I told God, okay, you're, you're calling us out of nothing. I mean, I love that old Hebrew phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God creates out of nothing. You're calling us out of nothing. I didn't have the slightest idea what you were doing. And so you're going to have to provide, you're going to have to provide. It's yours, God. And, he has done it. He has provided. He has sustained us. Every time we're ready for that next thing, he just drops the next resource in our lap. I could, we don't have time, you know, that old song, if ocean were ink and, you know, I had a quilt, I can't write <laughs> of what's happening at Rest Stop Ministries. It's just amazing. Well, I put the, uh, I put the web address up there for folks who are able to watch but i'll i'll just let you know if you go to rest stop ministries all one word rest stop ministries.org uh, you can find out a lot more about uh what all's going out at good home going on at good hope farm and and uh at, at rest stop and uh rondy I, I probably need to cut this off before i just absolutely lose it uh i'm so moved by uh not just what you've done but but who you are and who you've been in the lives of, of so many people. And, and I, I know that over the course of this conversation, it's been clear that each of the passages in life that you have, that you have been through. And I think this is true for all of us, whatever we find ourselves in the middle of right now, it's because of the decisions that we've made along the way, not knowing what, this decision is going to ultimately imply for our lives. But uh, my boys and I uh, say this to each other a lot. And, uh, you know, and I'll just, I'll say this again for my, for my wife's sake. She has, she said, Michael, you've always been about trying to save the world. You, you know, God sends people across our path every day, do something for the person that's in front of you and maybe their world will change in the process. And, and with my boys, it's do the next right thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, just keep doing the next right thing. And I, it feels like that's what you've been able to do. And, and Well, I want to I echo one thing. I know we got to cut it off. But, um, you know, I want people to know God's call is dynamic. It's not static. And so, right. you know, uh, just it, 
he says, follow, you know, Jesus' favorite word was follow me. Yeah. And his first word to his disciples was come and see, follow. So if, as long as we're living in tune with him and we're following where he is leading, he may remake us several times. And, but every season is important. Like you said, no season is wasted. And, and it's just what we even tell the women at rest stop. God's not going to waste any of your pain. He did not cause that pain. The pain you've, you've been caused is because we live in a fallen world and, and, and evil has been allowed to hurt you. But God is going to redeem it and he is not going to waste any of your pain. And I feel like in, in life's decisions and, and seasons, as you said, in passages, God's not wasted one thing that I've ever done. He's just brought it all together in this beautiful new thing. And I believe he'll do that for anybody who will just follow him. I can't say it any better than that. Thank you so much for being here with me. Uh, and uh, I hope. Sacred privilege. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. I hope great things continue. I know they will continue to happen for you and all that you guys do. Uh, give my best to Bobby. He's a dear friend as well. And uh, we appreciate hope. you. And Sarah, we we were neighbors. Yeah. And we, and we never got together while we were in the same neighborhood. Now I'm just down the road, though. Yeah. <laughs> Take care, Rondi. Take care. Tune in, folks. We'll see you next time here on Michael in the Middle.